the gospel lesson. It comes to us this morning from the good news according to St. Matthew, the 24th chapter, although I'm going to start a few verses early just to save myself some work later because this is our sermon text as well. Let me read a couple extra verses here at the beginning of chapter 24 before we get to our text. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of this age? Now to our text. Jesus says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark... And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And this is the gospel of our Lord. the season where we um, start thinking a lot about gifts. So I'm going to try to give you what I hope is a small gift this morning. It's a 96, maybe it won't be a gift, but we'll, we'll think that you never know until people open it up, right? So this is a, um, a small audio clip from 2009, and it was during the season of Advent. I was on the third floor, in my third floor walk-up apartment in South Slope when I was still the pastor, assistant pastor at Resurrection Park Slope. We've been doing Advent for a week or two uh, already as a family every night, reading the words from the scriptures around Advent, singing the songs. Uh, and as I do sometimes, I just picked up my guitar and started working through a pretty simple major chord progression. And my then five-year-old daughter came up and started singing. I'm going to play it for you. It's about 90 seconds in case you're one of the person that gets nervous and needs to be in control, something like that, right? And we're going to see if it sounds good on this mic. You know, we're super sophisticated here. So 90 seconds, an original piece of music, a spontaneous creation between Jameson Galt and Adeline Galt. It's called No One Knowed. No one. 
stop it there. I think he was so nice he saved the world is a good place to stop on. And also pretty soon she starts talking about badger gnomes and other things that you can't really interpret. So it's fine. It was a first draft, you know, room for improvement. Um, I feel tempted to just say that's it. That's the sermon. But uh, and have a nice week. But this recording has always been really special and beloved to me. Uh, you could you could say you could like sort of cheapen it by making it practical an argument for the habits of immersing in the word, of prayer, uh, of time together with family and friends, submitting to the stories of God, of liturgy, of repetition, the way that I got all these phrases about he's there, no one knows, no one, he came to his people, they didn't know, they didn't receive, and it just turns into this thing that's in the heart of a child. And it was absolutely a spontaneous, in-the-moment creation. I was waiting to see if he was going to keep going. Yeah, we're still going. Okay, I'll hit the chord. Inspiration. Totally inspired in the moment. And you know, inspiration is not something that you can bottle and sell. If you want to be inspired, all you can really do is make yourself available to be in the right place and to wait and to see if inspiration, wherever it comes from, if it strikes you and if you are given the gift of being inspired. And I think Adeline was singing this morning, as she had heard in all the readings and prayers, that there is good news. In the season of Advent, we celebrate good news. All of the Gospels begin with angels coming to prepare people for good news that they have been waiting for, for a long season of darkness and silence and quiet and death. They're saying God is coming. God is actually about to be here. He is here. And Christianity ever since has proclaimed this good news that God is here, where we knew him not. He was in a manger, but they did not know. In fact, no one knowed, right? He's in our world. He's in our communities. He's even in our bodies, the gospel says. And he has a beautiful heart, and he's so nice, he saved the world. And yet that refrain, no one Node. No one knowed. And grammar aside, this is gospel truth. It's the hard part of the truth from our passage. It's the hard part that comes at the beginning of Advent, which is the beginning of the church here, where we reenact and re-experience the good news of the entire Old to New Testament from Genesis to Revelation and the life of Christ. 
It begins with a hard part of the truth. It's a kind truth, but it is hard. It's the truth about why we find ourselves unhappy and broken and subject to death and decay. Everyone wants to know, why is it like this? If there is a God, where? If he is going to fix things, when? If he is going to finally get those bad guys and help me and my suffering good guys get the leg up, how? Full of questions that we want answers to. Where is this kingdom of shalom where all things flourish and no one has too much but everyone has enough? And everything has purpose, serving, giving and receiving, being praised and praising. Where is that? When does justice arrive? How long must we wait, Lord? And then as now there are plenty of people, generation after generation, who make a a hefty living, peddling answers. He's over here in this group. That's his people. He's hiding away, tucked in the fortress of this theological tradition. Oh, I know. I don't know what he's going to say to me, but I know he's coming for my enemies, those people over there. Or he can only be accessed by this unique technique, which I will teach to you for a fee. The disciples had these questions. They said, you're going to come finally and set up the kingdom. To set up the kingdom, you have to get rid of the old covenant, which is symbolized and finally still standing in this temple where God has done all these great things. And we know the kingdom is going to be a kingdom for all the nations and not just for Old Testament Israel. And we know this, Jesus. We know you're finally going to come and put down the Romans and do all this stuff and show up. And God's going to be present. And you're going to be his king. And you're going to tear this temple down to do it. We've heard you. We've listened. We know that this is what's going to happen. When is it going to be? How do we know? How do we we get ready. Tell us so we can be on the right side. And to all of this, which looks like busy thinking and planning and trying to be in control and just to know how everything, the lay of the land and how everything's going to work out, he calls that darkness. Sleeping. And to all their questions, Jesus says this, concerning the day and the hour, the when, all your stuff that you want to know. Concerning that, No one knows. Heavenly Father hasn't told the angels or even me. So there's a lot to unpack in verses like these, this passage I read. You heard stuff about Noah and people being left behind and the Son of Man coming back. And to really dig into it in like Bible study fashion, we'd have to talk about eschatology, which is a fancy word for the end times, how we think the world's going to end, how to interpret the Bible. How do we read well, especially the genre that is a pop apocalyptic speech and writing, which we experience here? We need to talk, as I've already hinted at, about the importance of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, which did happen, as the end of the whole old covenant way of life and the new beginning of a church era in which the church itself is the temple of the Holy Spirit of Christ. And see, that's a lot for one sermon. But I would say that's okay. I get a free pass this morning because to do all those things I just said is also to fall, to fall into the trap Jesus is warning about. Everyone wants to know, well, how is it going to end? Is it going to be my side or their side? How do I get ready? What's happening? I want to have it in my plan. And Jesus first says, when you want to know this, 
There is a thriving cottage industry of false prophets providing supposed answers. But what you need to know is that when you want to know this, it seems that you mostly want to know when. When's this happening again? So that we can go about our business. Not be bothered with God too, too much. At least until the last minute when we can rush to get our affairs in order, right? It seems Jesus is pointing us to a deeper kind of knowledge. He's like, you, always, you guys want to know some things. You want to know in an intellectual sense. Or better, you want to know in the sense of where to put my coming back on your weekly planner. Well, I can fit you in, Jesus. You just tell me, I'll work around it. In fact, you're more important than all the other stuff. Friday night? Friday night. Cool. All right. Then I'm going to do what I want all week. And it seems like I'll wake up and start fasting Friday morning and make sure I hit mass at noon. And then that's how I'll plan my week. Sounds good to me. You start to see how this kind of knowing is actually an avoidance strategy, right? A way to stay in control, to not be open, to prolong our independence, and especially to avoid vulnerability. Jesus says in this path, he, he repeats twice that we will not know the answer to this question. And both times he uses that word not know, the, the terms are in the perfect tense, which suggests that the ability to know, or in this case to not know, is not going to change. Anyone who claims to know otherwise or have the special skill of knowing is a false prophet. And then we go into this flood story that highlights the way we human beings tend to want to know God. On our terms. Remember the story of Noah and the flood and the people? They watched and they scoffed as Noah built the ark. They knew what he said in loving warning from God about, hey, you can all take shelter in me, but this thing is coming. And it's going to make sure that all this injustice and the slavery and this rape and this war and this murder, it's all going to be washed away. It's not the way my creation is intended to be. I will come, and I have to judge to make things new. I have to bring justice to make it just. I have to make things right for it to be righteous. And that's what I'm doing. And they knew. Noah told them this is going to happen. And yet they kept on with their lives without a second thought about God. As one commentator says in his commentary on this passage, it seems that their main sin was nonchalance about God. And he says it's the beginning and the end problem for human beings in general. That is, we have an uncanny ability to go about pretending that we do not know what we ought to know. We can even convince ourselves that we know something that it is impossible to know. See, the people of Noah's time failed to integrate what they knew about God into the way that they were living. They didn't want to be changed. They wanted to put them on the calendar and go about their business until the appointed time in which they'd have just enough time to write the ship, pun intended, I guess. I don't know. And Jesus warns them, as a parent warns a kid who is running into danger, that this posture is life-threatening. This wanting to know enough about God that we can kind of put him in our preferred little areas of our lives and communities and worlds. worlds. So Jesus says this to them. And again, we'd have to do a whole series on this, but he's talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, a once-in-time judgment 
on the old covenant order and all it had descended into in Israel's sin and failure so that he can launch something new full of shalom and flourishing and renewal and new beginnings. And this is also meant to point, this is the way he does it in the Old Testament with Noah. It's the way he does it with AD 70 in the temple of Jerusalem. It's the way we expect him and he tells us to expect to do it at the end of our own journeys and time. So we can learn lessons from it. But here's what he says to them. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Just like in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. Therefore, he says, and this is his point, he's warning them, he says, because this is true, because you cannot know, because I won't let you keep me in a compartment over here for Friday night. Because I made you and I love you and I want and desire and demand even more for things to be just and right than we have to be in true, committed, loving relationship, you and I, God and his people. He says, because this is true, you can't treat me that way. Stay awake. Stay awake. You don't know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, just an aside here again, you can't not talk about these things, but some of these verses have been used to come up with this new in history. It's only maybe a hundred and so years old, this idea about a rapture and all of uh, all the people that God loves going up to heaven and disappearing one day and the rest of us are left behind. Uh, maybe you've watched HBO's Leftovers, which is this like kind of secular dramatic version of what it would be like to be left behind and to be left over when all of the saints or what other kind of people get to go and be in heaven. But see, that's not really the biblical picture at all. The biblical picture, as we say here almost every week, is that God is going to come back. Jesus is going to come back. And on this very earth, he's going to fix everything. He's going to unleash its glory and he's going to get rid of all thorns and all curses and all death and all crying and all mourning. And he's going to make everything new. He's going to give us resurrected bodies and resurrected relationships, resurrected hope and experience in this earth. And just because we can read, I'll point it out. In this passage, being taken away, it's a bad thing. The people that got taken away... They went away, bye-bye, in the waters of the flood. The people left behind in an ark. And then in a new world, starting over. Okay? That's all I'm going to give you. There's your little Bible study tip for this morning. Being left behind in this passage is good. He says, don't be like those people who were suddenly taken away because they weren't dependent, trusting, waiting, and watching in relationship with me. Stay awake, you don't know on what day the Lord your the day what day your Lord is coming. I've said this is about the temple, and it is, but it also has relevance for us because he's promised to come again. He's promised to come to us and for us today as much as he did for them. And so it's important that we acknowledge what kind of posture, what kind of attitude, what kind of spirit Jesus is actually calling us to, even if we don't have knowledge of when or how or what does it look like when that happens. 
It seems he really wants us, as he did them, to stay awake and to have a certain kind of posture and attitude. And I will try to describe that to you as we work through the end of this. It seems like what he wants is for us to be awake, which is in the present tense, a permanent decision, a, a, a disposition, to stay awake, just like the verb to know is in the perfect tense, to always be known and to be knowing, not just knowledge, but to know, as you've probably heard in that deeper biblical sense of a committed relationship. When Adam knew his wife, she got pregnant. That's what the word means, is to know body, soul, mind, strength, an intimate union and connection that gives life. This is what kind of knowledge Jesus wants you to have of God. Not just the kind you can put on Friday night in your calendar or put after you've been able to afford to buy a brownstone or after you've achieved all your career hopes. No, no, no. He doesn't want you to put him off anymore because he knows it leads to unhappiness and brokenness and hurt and destruction. And what he wants is us to know him now. He says, therefore, be ready. The Son of Man is coming. The Son of Man is coming. Be ready, be awake, and know. See, no one knows, so stay awake and be ready and be in the moment with God. I think that's a fair colloquial way to translate it. Be always in the moment with God. Don't just be thinking about Friday night with God. Think about now, in this room. You might be drifting off. He's right here, paying attention to you, pleading with you. That's what he wants. And Advent, this new church year, helps us to remember that. That just as we look back that he came, we look forward that he will come, the point is that he is always coming to us now. That's what Advent means. It is a coming. That he is coming always. He is with us. He's around us, and we know it not. I'm going to have you do this thing. This is short. It's moving towards just a few minutes of illustration and application. I had Resurrection Clinton Hill do this once many, many years ago, but probably few of them will remember. Take... 30 more seconds. This is like the immersive uh, sermon today. We're going to listen to music. We're going to do group practices. Ready? Uh, if you have a kid who has ADHD or if you have a kid in school or you work with kids in school or you've struggled from anxiety yourself or you've ever been to therapy or you do any kind of mindfulness stuff, you know that one of the most important things you can do to be in the moment when you're like, oh no, I've got this work call in, in 20 minutes and I'm so freaking out about it and if I don't do well, then it's not. And, and you're just spinning and spinning. One of the best things you do is stop and just pay attention to your breath, Right? So let's do it together. It's not woo-woo. It's actually just helping you. It's just science, okay? Breathe for a second. I'm breathing. I'm going to count. Let's do four. Let's keep it real simple and equal. Ready? Breathe in. One, two, three, four. Hold it. One, two, three, four. Let it out. One, two, three, four. Breathe in. One, two, three, four. Four, hold it. Two, three, four. Breathe out slow. Two, three, four. Now stay out. Two, three, four. Now you can breathe in again if you want. 
I don't, we might all be a little bit different, but what's the most uncomfortable part of that for you? I wasn't doing that. I mean, you can do that at home, but that wasn't actually the point. It brought you back to the moment. You're thinking about something very concrete. It's about your breath. For me, I like to think of those cycles as very much like the seasons that we have here in the Northeast, right? And man, when you're breathing in, it's like you start to get life. Capillaries are popping, things are going, you're getting ready to go. And then summer, oh man, that's my favorite. Get me, you got a nice full lungs, you're ready to do anything, you can conquer anything, there's flourishing all around, eat fun, nature, it's great. And then fall, you start to breathe out and things start to, you know, you get, get some of that stuff, some of that old breath that's down there. You haven't really had to just push stuff out, it kind of starts to purge. But then, man, I hate it's all out and you're breathless. That feeling. Kind of like you swam to the end of the swimming pool and you don't know if it's, if you're going to be able to get up in time. It's terrifying. It's vulnerable. And you're waiting to see if when you breathe back in, the breath will come. I think it's interesting that Advent starts for us in winter. The beginning of the experience of walking through the whole year together of the church year starts in darkness. It starts when only when we are purged out and out of breath and we come to the end of ourselves and we say, we don't know. I don't know how to get from here to there. I sometimes, I know you're here, but I don't know how to access you. I'm all out of breath. I'm all out of plans. I'm all out of scheming. Will he come and give you breath? Will he come and give you life? It seems that time and time again, this is where God wants us to go to experience the seasons of life, the suffering and the joy, all the experiences. He wants us to learn moment by moment presence and dependence. That's why I think this church here is so great. It helps us to live fully human lives. It orients us to time to seasons, to all that it means to be human because it orients us around the life of Christ and he was the full and true human being. Thus it connects us to others that are connected to him. Which means your story, if you enter into it, if you will be vulnerable, if you will say, I'll be in this moment of vulnerability and breathlessness and dark and ignorance and I'll wait for you. If you will do that, then your experience becomes something more than just your own story. It, your life won't be just based on your own feelings at the moment or your own resources, your own plans, your own successes or failures or your personal circumstances. You'll become a part of the global body of Jesus in history. You'll enter into all the seasons and habits and practices of lament and joy and remembrance and anticipation, failure and confession, forgiveness and embrace, patience, honesty, humility, contentment. It will mark us out from the world and put us in God's time, not the world's time. Put us in the agenda and the good news of God rather than whatever the New York Times or Fox News is peddling that week. We will learn the wisdom of being with God in each moment of our day, our life, and of our church, and by extension of the world. 
because you might have a great Advent slash Christmas season, and I hope that you do. I hope you have almost no problems and lots of gifts and much feasting and great renewed community after all we've been through through these years. But even so, there are people around the world who are suffering from war and deprivation and hunger. And if we are attentive to the God who is in the moment with us and also in the moment with them, then we get larger. And you will find room in your day in the moment to care about people you didn't used to care for, to be present to the darkness, to the breathlessness, even if it's not your own, to the suffering and to the ignorance in the world. You will no longer need to resist this moment of powerlessness, weakness, dependence, quiet, lifelessness, fallow. You won't have to rush so hard to get busy and to make it go away because you will be waiting for God with bated breath. You'll stay awake and wait and watch. And right then is where he will be with you. Again, we begin out of breath needing his spirit. We begin in the dark needing his light. We begin in ignorance needing his knowledge. We begin in an unjust world needing his justice and judgment to come and to make things right for us. And if we will be vulnerable and wait there, he says, this is all I desire, is that you stay awake and be ready and wait. And so Advent is a great time, if you haven't gone through the fall movement yet, of purging, thinking of things to give up or reorient your life around the presence of God in and through Christ and his church and his sacraments and his spirit and his word and acts of service and all the places that, and ways that he shows up to you. It's a good time to do that, to take stock and say, let me use these remaining weeks as we move into winter to purge, to get that last breath out, to trust you that if I do that, you will come right there and bring new life. To purge in order to be present. To trust that when he's present, when he arrives, spontaneous, new life and inspiration happens. I want to close with a story and a prayer. This is a prayer slash journal entry about a new song. A new song being requested, like the one you heard at the beginning. One in the moment and of the moment. One where you're going to hear the author pray for inspiration, but I want you to know what that word inspiration means. Do you know? I mean, it's right there. You can hear it. Inspiration. In-spirited. To have something breathe into you and to come and give you new life right when you're out of breath, to be inspired. This is from one of our national treasures, African-American theologian and and knower of God, Howard Thurman. He's praying for the courage and ability to stay expectant and to be constantly renewed over the course of his life, to be present to God in every moment. And I close with this. The old song of my spirit has wearied itself out. It has long ago been learned by heart so that now it repeats itself over and over, bringing no added joy to my days or lift to my spirit. It's a good song. Measured to the rhythm to which I am bound by ties of habit and timidity of mind, 
The words belong to old experiences which one spring fresh as water from a mountain crevice fed by melting snows, but my life has passed beyond to other levels where the old song is meaningless. I demand of the old song that it meet the need of present urgencies. Also, I know that the work of the old song, perfect in its place, is not for the new demand. I will sing a new song. As difficult as it is, I must learn the new song that is capable of meeting the new need. I must fashion new words born of all the new growth of my life, my mind, and my spirit. I must prepare for new melodies that have never been mine before, that all that is within me may lift my voice unto God. How I love the old familiarity of the wearied melody. How I shrink from the harsh discords of the new untried harmonies. Teach me, my Father that I might learn with the abandonment and enthusiasm of Jesus, the fresh new accent, the untried melody, to meet the need of the untried tomorrow. Thus I may rejoice with each new day and delight my spirit in each fresh unfolding. I will sing this day a new song unto thee, O God. May that be true for each one of us this morning, this week, this season, and beyond. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Up in the sky and the dream. Daddy, can I please? Up in the sky, the dreamer.